Good afternoon, everyone. Today's Bible reading is from Romans chapter 8, verses 26 to 30. Romans chapter 8, verses 26 to 30. And I'm reading from NIV. Please follow through. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself in intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Amen. Um, I'm Andres. Uh, if you haven't met me before, uh, one of the teaching elders uh, at the church. And uh, as for those of us that have been coming regularly, uh, we have been working through the book of Romans. And we've come to the passage now in chapter 8 uh, that uh, Nisi uh, uh, so beautifully read for us. And, uh, and only a few verses but there is a lot there. So hopefully uh, you have your Bible handy uh, so you can keep your thumb uh, or finger or, uh, or bookmark um, uh, on today's passage. We will be doing a bit of jumping around, uh, but hopefully those verses will come onto uh, the uh, screen. So remember, our final authority is God's Word here. Uh, so we want to always check what the preacher is saying. Uh, don't, don't trust the preacher. Uh, but trust the Bible and trust God's Word. So I want, I, I, we want here at Grace International for, for you guys to be a, a questioning uh, congregation that always checks what the preacher says according to the Word. Is, it, is that right for the levels? Great. So chapter 8 has been an encouraging chapter for us. We have seen how we are co-heirs in Christ and how we can cry out to our God as our dear Father. We have seen how the Spirit dwells within us and guides us. However, we've also heard that we will share in Jesus' suffering in this life too. In his letters, generally when Paul talks about suffering, generally the next thing he talks about is a hope in the future. And we have that in, in today's section. So on the days that it's hard, we need to look forward to what is coming, where even creation is groaning and has been waiting for uh, the coming of God's plan, including our salvation and our glorification. On May the 11th, in 1996, Robert Hall called his wife from the top of Mount Everest after having climbed the summit five times. However, it wasn't a joyful uh, call because everything that day had gone wrong. Several people had already died and Robert Hall made his way back to the summit to try to save others. Anyway, with frostbite on his hands, frostbite on his, on his feet, he radioed base camp and asked them to hook, hook uh, him up to his wife on the sat phone. He told her 
that everything was going okay. And he said, sleep well, my sweetheart. Please don't worry too much. He died soon after. His last moments on this world, he wanted to be with someone. He didn't want to be alone. In the depths of his suffering, he needed to feel like he was close to someone else. So it is in Romans chapter 8, verses 26 to 27, where we read, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So we come to a question after hearing about the suffering, uh, suffering together with Christ uh, last week. So as co-heirs in Jesus' suffering, how are we going to make it through? The, word, the world will hate us if we don't belong to it. However, have a look at the beginning of verse 26. In the same way. Leading on from last week, God gives us hope till the time of completion, till glory. Although it can be hard suffering and life can be difficult, when unexpected things pile up, when our sin and the sin of others remind us how creation is groaning, let alone when we uh, read about the persecuted church and our brothers and sisters in Christ who are being stoned and tortured and beheaded and killed. Robert Hall wanted someone nearby as he was passing away. The Spirit is the one that never leaves us alone in our suffering. And so these verses are a comfort in our suffering For this God has given us the Spirit. So, so far in Romans, we've seen other jobs that the Spirit does. The Spirit sets us free from the law. The Spirit sets our minds on what God desires, transforming us. And the Spirit ensures that we are God's children and co-heirs with Christ. And the Spirit raised Jesus to life and will also raise us to glory. And verse 26 adds to the list, the Spirit assists us in our weakness by helping us pray. Despite the fact that it can sometimes feel overwhelming to pray, God knows what we uh, what we know. uh, God knows what we don't uh, in these times of trouble, and helps us to pray. And the Spirit intercedes without words. So when we struggle with prayer, or when I can be afraid of treating God like a genie in a bottle, the Spirit intercedes and we are not alone. God understands and searches our hearts and knows the mind of the Spirit. But it can sometimes be even difficult to define what prayer is. One commentator stated, prayer is something That is going on all the time between Father, Son and Spirit. When we pray, we are never alone. We join the prayer that is already going on. That's a really lovely quote. Let me just say that again. 
Prayer is something that is going on all the time between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. When we pray, we are never alone. We join the prayer that is already going on. It reminds us how encouraging these verses in Romans actually are as we share in Jesus' suffering and as we wait for glory. Through prayer, the Spirit is moulding our thoughts to be more like Jesus Christ. Packer even says the Spirit corrects our prayers on the way up. Therefore, you are not alone in prayerless mumbling, for the Spirit of God turns our tears and sighs, our groans, our pain and our heartache into prayers to our dear Father in heaven. Genuine comfort from an indwelling spirit with the ability to truly say, your will be done. So when you feel the weight of the world on your shoulders, come to God in prayer. You don't need the right words. You don't need correct phrases or liturgy. Let the indwelling spirit guide your prayers, mould your prayers, even correct your prayers. God has given you the spirit so that you will never be alone. But why is all this happening? Is God really in control here? Is God sovereign in these situations? Verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Now, this is one of the most misquoted uh, verses in the Bible. And it's often taken out of context to say, if you love God, everything in life will be fine for you. If you love God, you'll be rich, you'll be wealthy, you'll be healthy, you'll have influence, you'll have power. Insert what you want as long as you love God. But no, God has a different definition of what is good for us. Remember this verse is in the context of redemption, hope in suffering and bringing us to glory. So what is God's good purpose? Let's look ahead for a second to verse 29. It is for those that he foreknew and predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Verse 30, to be glorified. In fact, it's better than riches or health or wealth or power or influence. It is eternal. It will outlast the things of this world. But what about my life now? What about the grandson of my friend who has cancer? What about the miscarriages that we've had? What about the car that's going to cost me an arm and a leg? Paul is quite clear. In a fallen world, we naturally will choose sin. If left to our own desires, we choose sin. We put me in the centre. And as a consequence, we heard creation is groaning, waiting for relief, waiting for the new creation and Jesus' glory. God will bring about his plan despite all of our sin. An example is Joseph. Now, you know him as the guy from the movie Prince of Egypt. And he said to his brothers, after he was sold into slavery in a foreign land, 
falsely accused of sexual harassment, almost killed, put in prison, and and yet uh, he went through all of this so Israel would be saved and flourish through the drought. But what is it that Joseph said to his brothers that's, uh, that started all this pain and suffering in motion? We read it in Genesis 50, verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And in God's good time, we will stand together with Joseph and a long line of saved believers glorifying and praising God without pain, without tears, in the comfort of his loving arms. Now, how does that stack up to the lifestyles of the rich and famous? So despite us choosing to bring sin into the world, God will use it for his purpose of those who love him to bring about Jesus' glory and to make us co-heirs so we have comfort in God's sovereignty. Now, I really like action movies. You know, know, the ones where you know the hero won't die unless his surname is Stark. But still, you sit on the edge for two hours wondering, how is he going to get through this? Sometimes even, I remember one movie where, which was a detective who'd done it, where even the actors didn't know who the murderer was until they shot the very final scene. Now, on one level, someone's worked out what's going to happen in the movie. But as a viewer, you have no idea how it's going to play out. Sometimes the actors don't even know, and the characters definitely don't know. It's a mystery. But why are movies still exciting? If there's a script, why is it still, why do they still sell millions of tickets? Because on the level that we watch the movie, we don't know what's happening, and we want to see how it will play out. We like to live on a level not knowing what is going to happen next. Now, I want you to keep this analogy in the back of your mind as we discuss verse 29 and God's predestination and choice. But let's first have a look at a few terms in verse 29 to help us understand the verse. So verse 29, for those God foreknew. Now, foreknew is made up of two words, for, indicating before, and knew. God knew you ahead of time. Before you were even born, God knew you. But not only did he just know you, he deeply knew you and drew you in a relationship, a relationship before you were even born. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, predestined, God foreordains Christians to rise again like his son did. So Jesus is the firstborn, the first to be resurrected. 
So the destination then of Christians is to be called. Firstborn among many brothers and sisters, and those he predestined, he also called. Called is God chooses us. He calls us to follow him, just as Jesus called his disciples. And those he called, he also justified. Justified? It's a legal term that we've seen a lot in this series in Romans. Basically, meaning made right with God. Our debt is cleared by Jesus' sin. Uh, sorry, by Jesus' sacrifice. Our sin has been paid for by Jesus' sacrifice. And those he justified, he glorified. Glorified refers to the resurrection of the dead. We've glorified bodies to live forever with Jesus Christ. In fact, we see that this passage is so confident of God's sovereignty and so certain of our salvation that it speaks of glorification as a done deal. Despite the fact that our bodies are aging, it's as though we already have our glorified uh, bodies. But who is doing it all? It's God through his spirit and Christ's work. The theological uh, term for those uh, that are interested is monogistic. So note there is nothing that you need to do. But wait a second, you might say. Don't I have to choose God? No, because God chose you. But I need to be good enough every day, don't I? No. God foreknew you before time with all of your faults and still predestined you for salvation. But at least I must have to be baptised. That must be important. No, it's good to be obedient to God's word. But it is God who justifies you. But I have to work at my sanctification. No, do what you can to imitate Christ. But Romans chapter 8 says that if you are justified by Jesus' blood, you will be glorified. God will do the real work of sanctification in your life. But our other difficult question is, if God predestined me, why not everyone? Whilst on holidays in Israel, a doctor was in downtown Jerusalem where he, he noticed a beggar who had a certain skin condition. Now, this doctor was a liver specialist and he happened to have a, the, the, the right medicine in his bag to cure this condition. Despite being on holidays, he went and bought some water, took the water to the, to the beggar, gave him the medicine and watched as life returned to the lame man's limbs. The lame man was cured. When the doctor returned to his home country, someone said, that must have made you feel really great. The doctor said, yeah. But why didn't you stay in the country and cure everyone with that condition? Now, 2,000 years uh, earlier, another man who was fully man and fully God and not limited to the doctor's modern limitations, was also in downtown Jerusalem at the Sheepgate Pool, which in Aramaic is called 
Bethsaida. He too noticed a sick lame man in a crowd of sick people and cured him. You can read about it in John 5. Now, Jesus could have cured everyone there instantly, but he didn't. In fact, he could have cured everyone sick right then and there in the whole world instantly, right then. But he didn't. It can be difficult for us to understand why. But a little while later, he gave his life. God gave his life. More so, he took the death and punishment that we all rightfully deserved. The perfect sacrifice. But why doesn't everyone go to heaven? Why? Despite Jesus' sacrifice, do some people still uh, be judged to hell? In 1 Peter 2, verses 7 to 8, we read, Now to you who believe, this stone, that is Jesus, is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become a cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They will stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined to do. Not everyone uh, will be saved. Some will be judged the judgment that we all deserve. Now, in Grace International, as I said, we preach the Bible systematically. So we need to deal with difficult questions as they come up in passages. And in this particular passage, we hit several difficult questions. So before we uh, dive deeply into this, let me just state that Christians do agree, uh, dis- sorry, di- disagree about some of these next questions. And disagreement is not a reason to split the church. But a preacher's task is to try to let the text in front of us speak for itself, to see what the text says, despite the fact that sometimes we would like God or his methods to be a little bit different. So why doesn't God save everyone? Why does God create some people that he knows, or if you take a hyper-Calvinist view that some Christians believe, why does he choose to send some people to hell? To answer these questions, we have some smaller questions that we have to think about first. Do we have free will? Does God have sovereignty over everything? And what do I contribute to my salvation? Firstly, do we have free will? Let me give you an an analogy of an interaction of my eldest son when he was little. He came to me and said, Can I eat a whole tub of ice cream? Do you really want a whole tub? I said. He said, yes. I said, okay, that's fine. Let's go get the whole tub. And he was beaming. He was so happy. And then I said, but wait a second. Do you remember on your birthday how your mum let you have a whole cake? What happened? Uh, I was not very happy. I was sick and vomited everywhere. Yeah, sick and vomited. Did you you like that? Oh, no, I I didn't like that. What do you think will happen if you have a whole tub of ice cream? Um, Maybe the same thing will happen. 
he stopped and he thought about it for a moment and he said, maybe I should have just a cone of ice cream. And I said, that's a good idea. If that's what you want, let me get a cone of ice cream for you. Now, did I change my mind? Did I ever really want to give him a whole tub of ice cream? No, I was just leading him through the process. Was I lying to him? No, I was teaching him. I was guiding him. Did he feel like he was making the decisions? 100% yes, he felt like he was making the decision. Was he deciding for himself and happy with the final outcome? Yes, he was. Did he have free will? Yes and no. You see, I was in charge of the conversation and the outcome. But you could say that 100% my son decided that he only wanted a cone. And I also decided that he should come to the decision of only wanting an ice cream cone. You see, we were both in agreement. A good parent allows a child to do what they want whilst leading the child to do what actually what is the right decision. So what does this have to do with salvation and predestination? Well, the real starting question is, do we have free will? Can we choose to accept or reject our Father in heaven? Let's look at a similar kind of uh, interaction in Exodus, where we have three different verses from Exodus about Joseph and Pharaoh. Firstly, Exodus 4.21. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt... See that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I, that is God, will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So in the Bible, we have verses where God actively hardens Pharaoh's heart. Next, let's take Exodus 7.13. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. So in the Bible, Pharaoh's heart also seems to become hard by itself. And the final, the final quote is Exodus 8.15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. Similarly, Exodus describes Pharaoh actively hardening his own heart. All these three things are happening simultaneously. God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh is deciding by himself to harden his his own heart. And his heart is already hard from the sin. Why, Why is this important for us? If you accept Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, you can rest assured that God has already chosen you. He has led you to this decision by His Spirit. If you choose to follow God, know that it is by His power that you saw past your sin and your selfishness and He has already called you. Wow, isn't that just comforting? I don't need to second-guess myself. If you choose Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, know the Spirit led you there. That is assurance. That is God's apostle seal on your decision. 
But why did he choose us? Are we Christians somehow better than others in some way? In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 9, we read, So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Naturally left to our own desires, no sinful person can ever choose God. There is no verse in the Bible of us softening our own heart. R.C. Sproul explains, All that God has to do to harden people's hearts is to remove the restraints. He gives them a longer leash. Rather than restricting their human freedom, he increases it. He lets them have their own way. In a sense, he gives them enough rope to hang themselves. It is not that God puts his hands on them to create fresh evil in their hearts. He merely removes his holy hand of restraint from them and lets them do their own will. So the more freedom we have, we never, ever choose God by ourselves. Let's look at Romans 8, 28 again. Verse 28. For the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God calls us according to his purpose. Verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God not only knew you before time, he predestined, he chose But is this the only place in the Bible that we see this predestination thing? No, there are actually a truckload of uh, verses that talk about God choosing and God predestining. Let me just quickly run through a few. And if you're interested, you can always uh, uh, come to to me or Andis or or, uh, someone else and and ask for plenty more. But the first one is Ephesians 1, 4-5, written by the Apostle Paul. Verse 4. For he chose us in him before creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Matthew twenty-two fourteen, written by the Apostle Matthew, quoting Jesus. For many are invited, but few are chosen. John 15, verse 16 written by the Apostle John, quoting Jesus. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Acts 13, 48, written by Luke. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honoured the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. And so what happens next? Verse 30, back in Romans 8. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also 
glorified. God the Father predestined us before time. God called us by the Spirit. God has justified us by the death of Jesus. And although not yet glorified, it is as good as done because the maker of the universe says so. So why can that still bother us? It grieves us because we can feel that it's not fair, which is interesting because in life we often call the not fair when we miss out. But in reality, we want the choice. It's the same sinful nature that led Adam and Eve to choose to eat from the uh, tree of knowledge of good and evil, the forbidden tree. It is the same desire we have naturally from birth when babies cry and scream and want themselves in the middle. No one has to teach us to lie. No one has to teach us to cheat, to want what isn't ours, because that is our true nature. And all that we deserve from that is God's righteous judgment. In chapter 9, later we will see um, uh, God, uh, which will deal more with God's sovereignty. And we'll see in chapter 9 uh, the description of God as a potter and us as his clay. We are his clay, insignificant and flawed. We are not God's equals. But does that mean that God leads us into sin? James chapter 1.13 answers that. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Sin is our choice. Just like Pharaoh consciously hardened his own heart, and as a consequence, we deserve judgment for our actions. But then how are these verses good news? The good news is that our salvation is 100% a gift from God. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is our sin, and that's not something we should be proud of. But Jesus' blood justified us. We can't take any credit for God choosing us. He chose us. We can give him only our thanks. It is not because we are smart, talented, or witty that he chose us. Yet he chose us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 27 to 29, we read, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. But if I... If I am predestined, does that mean I can just do anything I want? Let's look again at verse 29. For those God foreknew, he he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Our purpose is to become like Jesus, to become a better copy of the master painting us. With each iteration, the painting becomes more like the original. Paul encourages us in Colossians 3 verse 12 
Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. The pressure is off. The pressure is off for evangelism. Jesus encourages us to make uh, disciples of all nations, but it's not up to us to have the right words, to have the right tract. It's not up to us to have the perfect building or the perfect sound equipment. It's not up for us to have the perfect sermon or the perfect music because it's not our work. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. I mean, when I get up here, my challenge is to be faithful. But I don't need to convince or manipulate you. I don't need an organ uh, quietly going in the background and coming to a crescendo as the talk comes to a crescendo. If Anders does a bad job, ever, it will not change whether someone chooses God. God chooses us. So you might say, well, why should I bother preaching or telling my friends about Jesus? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 has an answer. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. God has included us to be part of his kingdom-building work. He has called us to declare him to our friends and workmates and colleagues and neighbours. So today's passage encourages us in our suffering to pray. Pray for the lost. Pray for each other. Pray for our leaders in the church. Pray for our leaders in the government. But that is too much pressure. What if I don't know what to pray? We are not alone. The Spirit is within us that searches us and the Spirit will give us the right words and correct our prayers. But what if my actions aren't great? What if I don't do everything perfectly? Well, God is sovereign. He will turn everything to the good of those who love him for his good purposes and his plan. So friends, what is left? Pray And let the Spirit guide you with his groans. Trust in your sovereign God who will turn tragedy and suffering for the good of those who love him. And thank God for bringing you here. Thank God for opening your eyes to the truth and leading you to seek him. Thank God for justifying you as one day and one day glorifying you as co-heirs with Christ. It it almost sounds too good to be true. So the real question is, why did God save me? Why did God save you? It is for his purpose and to show his grace. So live your life as a life of thanks in the certainty that you have a precious and generous God who gave his life that you may live, who was raised again, 
so that you may be raised again in glory as co-heirs with Christ. Now that is great news to live by. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the gift of your spirit who helps us pray and is with us in times of suffering. Thank you for your sovereignty and that you bring about the good in all circumstances to those who love you. Thank you that you chose us, predestined us, justified us, and give us the certainty of glory. May our eyes always be on you and others around us as we declare your praises for the glory of your Son, Jesus, in whose precious name we pray. Amen.